morning. It's great to have you here this morning. Great to have people watching in from all over the place. That's always exciting. And uh, we are doing a series out of the book of Proverbs. I hope that uh, we're all becoming wiser. How many think that's important? Wisdom literature. And to be wise means that we really develop and cultivate a fear of God in our lives. I'm going to have a stand this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. And I want to pray especially this morning for a young family in our church. Um, some of you may know who Kristen Faulkner is. She passed away this week. And so it left a little 10-year-old and 6-year-old boy with Shane. And so we're going to pray for that family today. They're certainly in crisis. I know others are walking through a lot of grief. There's people that are... I don't know, it just seems to be a very interesting period of time. There's families walking through sorrow and loss and challenges. I know some of you here probably today have requests on your heart. Maybe some of you are looking for employment with you know, COVID impacting us in a very negative way economically. And so I know that many are burdened by what's happening. How many here could say that you've been impacted in the last four months? Anybody here want to say you've been impacted by COVID in the last four months? See, I got my hand up. Even though my life is going really well, this has been challenging, you know, and people have been in crisis, and you can sense that, and there's a lot of anxiety inside of people. I think our age is filled with anxiety, and then you add a crisis, and people are really feeling the pressure right now. So we want to pray for each one of you here that are listening and you that are here today and for this beautiful family. Um, I can honestly say that Kristen, I mean, she's in a better place, right? She knows Christ. She's with him right now. She's rejoicing. And, you know, Patty and I were visiting with uh, her, and we were able to share with her that God will take care of her family. And uh, big tears are coming down her cheeks, you know. And she, I could tell that was uh, a great relief to her, that God will take care. And how many believe that God's in control of this planet? See, I got my hand up. How many believe God's even in control of the mess on this planet? He can handle it. Uh, we're, we're, it feels like it's spinning out of our control. I think that's just the deeper realization we've never been in control. And I think we're becoming more and more aware of that. So let's turn to our Father in heaven. Father, we thank you today that you are such a loving and gracious God. And even in the midst of loss, in the midst of grief, in the midst of sorrow, your presence is there to comfort and to walk beside us in those moments of distress and despair and even discouragement, Lord, I pray for our, not only our church family, but those that are listening and beyond, Father, to many other lives that are struggling right now through this season. We pray for those that are in leadership, our civic leadership from our city, our province to our nation's leaders, Lord. They need your wisdom, Father. We recognize that. And Lord, we believe that you can turn their hearts, even as it says in your book of Proverbs here, we're gonna study that this morning, that you can even turn the heart of a leader, Father, and make them move in a direction unbeknownst to themselves to fulfill your design and purpose without violating our freedom of will that you can move in spite and be sovereign over humanity's issues. I pray today as we hear this word that you'd open our heart, Father, and maybe it would change our understanding, our perspective, and would give us a deeper confidence, a quiet peace, a deep assurance that you truly are guiding the affairs of men and bringing this world ultimately to yourself. And that's the goal. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. I've been reading a book by a historian and author. His name is Alan, Alan Axelrod. And 
uh, I got this as a gift and I started reading it. I've had it for a while. It's called Little Known Wars of Great and Lasting Impact. Doesn't that sound exciting? Uh, anyways, I want to just share one of the uh, chapters that he opens up. And I mean, you know, I've, I've known about this conflict, but I've never really studied it before. And when I mentioned it this morning to my prayer partners, they just were like in the dark. They just had not even understood anything about it. And it's the story of a man by the name of Simon ben Kozba, who believed himself to be a descendant of the house of David. And at the time of Hadrian's decrees, now Hadrian was a Roman emperor who reigned in the years 117 to 139 AD. So uh, at the time of his decree, Rabbi Akiva, now how many have ever heard of Rabbi Akiva? Anybody here have heard of him? Okay, I can see that there's nobody in the room that's heard of Rabbi Akiva. Actually, if you were Jewish, you'd probably know because he's one of the most famous rabbis. Uh, he's, uh, in the Talmud, is celebrated at the head of all sages, the head of all wise men. Well, he made, uh, he anointed Simon and bestowed upon him a new surname, Barcoba. Now, how many have heard of that name, Barcoba? Okay, so Simon Barcoba which Barcoba in literally in the Aramaic language means son of a star. So Simon Barcoba is Simon, son of a star. And it's really in reference to a prophecy found in the book of Numbers, chapter 24 and verse 17, where it says a star has shot off of Jacob. And this is really a, a messianic expression. And so by doing that, by Rabbi Akiva identifying Simon Barcoba as the Messiah, he was basically doing that, the savior of the Jews. Now, how many know that if he says that in about 130, uh, 133 AD, that's going to spark something inside of the Jewish hearts, that they think that their famous rabbi is saying, this guy is the Messiah. Well, this claim was enough to alienate a small section of the, a Jewish sect, which we came to know as the followers of Jesus. And... Uh, who had been crucified almost exactly 100 years earlier. And the foundation of their faith, of course, was in Jesus, the Nazarene, and that he was the true Messiah. Now, we have to remember the words of Jesus that he said in the book of Matthew. He says, at that time, anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So Jesus was forecasting that after his death and resurrection, there would be people coming along and saying they're the Messiah. So Jesus knew number a couple of things. One, that the majority of the people in his time would not follow him. Number two, Jesus recognized that uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD would occur. But also, now we're going to see the second great Jewish revolt in 133 AD. Now, on the eve of that second Jewish revolt, the Christians definitely split away from the other Jewish people so that the Barcova revolt may be said to mark the emergence of Christianity as a new religious expression separate from that of the other Jews rather than a sect within Judaism. Because prior to that, they were just a part of Judaism. Now, by the time the Barcova uh, rebellion was defeated by the Romans, it was almost a genocidal toll. There were 580,000 Jews killed in that situation. That was according to the Roman sources. According to the Jewish Talmud, which is their uh, writings, 
the Jewish, uh, they said far more Jewish people were lost in that conflict. As a matter of fact, those few Jewish Judeans who survived the suppression of the rebellion and the oppression that followed were exiled first from Jerusalem, then from all of Judea, and thus the Jews were cast to the four corners of the ancient world. And Hadrian was so angry at them that he literally renamed that area Syria, Palestinia. He was so upset. And that's why we get the name Palestine today. It was really out of this season of time. Now, two elements were at work creating the civil unrest that exploded into such a terrible and horrible outcome. First of all, an emperor who lacked cultural and religious sensibilities. How many know it's important that leaders get, get an understanding of the people they're leading? Hadrian did not understand what was going on. And secondly, a renewed religious fervor created by the belief that Simon bar Kozba was the long-awaited Messiah. So the strong belief in Judaism was that the Messiah would come and would rule the, actually the world. So you can imagine those two, two elements being brought to bear at the same moment caused this amazing explosion. And so there was a revolt and such great destruction. Now, what can we learn from this experience? I think we have to learn from history. And if we don't learn from the past, what do we tend to do? We tend to repeat it, right? And so there's a lot of things happening in our world today are just repetitions of what happened earlier, but we're just forgetful of what the past was about. So what's the right attitude towards civic leaders or leaders for that matter? And uh, many people today question the competencies of governments today. Now, I'm not going to have you raise your hand <clears throat> because uh, that might be a little bit too intense, but I'm sure we've all had differenting different opinions of what should be done in regards to uh, governance. And so how does basically that, that affect our compliance to what is being asked of us? Because if we question the competencies of a leader, we begin to question why should we do what they're asking. Isn't that true? And we have a tendency to do that. And I sense today there's probably more questions and more frustrations and more irritations and more disregard for leaders than ever before. We're almost living in an anti-authoritative culture today. Maybe you disagree with that, but at least that's the impression that I get as I'm watching what's happening in our world. <clears throat> so what happens when we don't agree? And the biggest question I have to ask, and I think the most important question, and the one opinion that matters the most is, what does God have to say, and where is God in this equation? Where is God in the midst of all this governance? How many think that might be the most important question? And maybe we better discover what does God have to say, and what does God think, and how, how does this play into our response to the things that the government's asking us to do? So let's take a look at what the Word of God has to say. And uh, in Proverbs 16, we're, it's going to speak to an issue of God's sovereignty, which means that God ability to control and, and fulfill his purposes, and human responsibility as it relates to this issue of governance and authority. How many think this might be an important question? Like, where does God fit into the issue of who's in charge of the world and how things should be playing out on a daily level? So throughout human history, humanity, and particularly God's people, have lived under the authority of God. How many know we're all under God's authority? And even the people who don't believe in God, they are still under God's authority. He's the creator, and one day they'll all be accountable just like we will be before the one who made us. So we, have been, we belong to God, even all of humanity. We were created by him. Now, 
Is that amens or what? <laughs> a little bit of sound technical difficulty there. Now, we need to realize that regardless of the human leadership representative, rather if it be, you know, like we have a democratic society with representatives or tribal leaders or kings, I like what David Hubbard says. He says, dual authority we recognize, divine sovereignty and human government. Dual authority, but did not mean equal authority, okay? Even though there's two authority structures, it's not equal. God's people were confronted regularly with the competences and the capriciousness of monarchs. And during Judah's heyday, they watched the pendulum swing from righteous kings to foolish ones, from kings who trusted God to those who tested them. How many know when you read your Bibles, if you're reading through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, what you're getting is a list of guys all the northern kingdoms, I'll, I'll help you out, all of Israel's kings were bad. They, they just did the wrong things, okay? They had a false religious system. But the southern kings, you had good kings that did what God wanted, and then you had kings that were rebellious against God. How many have kind of figured that out? And it usually has some lines that this is so-and-so, and he's a descendant of David, and he acted like David. In other words, David was the standard. David was the person who was doing what God wanted. And then you have some that said, but he didn't act like his father David. You know, he's doing his own thing over over here. How many kind of read that in the Bible? I'm just, you know, right? Okay, let's make sure we're all on the same page here. So in Hebrews 16, we're going to see how we should respond to those in authority in our lives. How many think that might be a good question? How should I respond? What does God expect of me? And then what's fascinating is that after the Babylonian exile, okay, so you have the Assyrian exile and the northern tribes are taken away, and then about 100 plus years later, the uh, southern two tribes of Judah were taken into Babylonian captivity. And from that point on, it's amazing, but the Jewish people were under foreign domination until the modern period, until 1948. How many think that's fascinating? For, so now for thousands of years, over 2,000 years, the Jews were under other people ruling over them. And I think that's an important th thing because when we look at this wisdom literature, it's teaching us how to respond to leaders, especially when we don't agree with them, right? Because now you're under someone who's unlike you and doesn't necessarily always value or appreciate your value system. So throughout history, we've lived with a tension between what I'm gonna call God and Caesar. We've lived with this tension. And I can, I can pick any period of time and I can show you that there's been a tension between God and Caesar and here in Proverbs 16, I think we have a check and balance in which we glean directives that will help us to honor God and bring direction in order to help us curb civil unrest. Because what I'm watching happening today is that people are more frustrated than ever before, and there's a greater degree of civil unrest. Has anybody noticed that? And in some parts of the world, and it's always been true in history, that there's, when you, when you get to the extreme of the unrest, then you have, you know, revolt, and many times what happens is a destabilization of government, and then you have anarchy, and you have all kinds of problems that emerge from that. And I think Jesus kind of summarizes it so beautifully when he was asked the question. Remember, uh, these uh, religious leaders are so smart, they figure we're going to entrap Jesus, we're going to make him either lose his popularity with people or we're going to get him in trouble with the Romans. And they asked the question, are we to pay taxes to Caesar or not? How many think that's a tough question, you know? Put somebody underneath, you know? Should we pay taxes or not? How many know the regular people who were now oppressed by Romans who were paying tremendous duties and were really frustrated 
by the system, you know, they, they, they were very eager to hear what Jesus was gonna say to this question. So what does Jesus do? He says to them, oh, by the way, show me the coin. He says, oh, is there an inscription on it? And of course, everybody knew that, you know, that it was minted with the image of Caesar. And what's Jesus' famous response here in Matthew, uh, uh, Mark chapter uh, 12, verse 17? Jesus says to them, give back to Caesar what's Caesar and to God what is God's, right? In other words, where should our allegiance lie? And when Jesus basically answered the question, he said, we must render taxes or we must render the respect and honor due to the human institution of governance, but our primary allegiance always belongs to whom? To God. And that's what Jesus was saying. Now, how many think that was a brilliant answer on Jesus' part? He was basically saying, oh yeah, we need to pay the taxes there, but he said, listen, there is an allegiance that's higher than human government. They didn't expect him to say that, and that literally the people understood that there is a higher allegiance. What we're gonna discover in Proverbs 16 is simply how God works sovereignly in the lives of people without impeding human freedom. How many think that's an amazing thing, that God can give you and I freedom, he can give leaders freedom, and yet God can still work and accomplish his purposes in spite of the fact that you and I have freedom? How many think that's kind of a mystery? And that's been a tension in the church. How does this work, you know, that God gives us freedom and yet God can, you know, basically accomplish his purposes. So I want to take a look at two sides of leadership, the divine side and then the human side. I know that you guys are saying this isn't such an inspiring message, but I think it's a very important one and I think we need to understand it. So it's going to be very instructive today. And I think if we take these principles to heart, it's going to help us to live out this life with the right attitudes. How many think attitudes are important? You know, remember last week I talked about out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so a lot of times we're saying things because we're frustrated deep down inside. I'm saying if we get the right thinking, which is a part of the heart, we're going to start saying the right things. And we're going to start honoring God in a very powerful way. So let's take a look at the first element. It's understanding that God's overruling purposes are being accomplished in spite of what humans are doing. And I think that's an important thing. Now... You may not know this, but in Proverbs 16, the first nine verses, there's only one verse that doesn't mention the name Yahweh or the name of the Lord. Eight of them do. This is the most intensely concentrated part of the book of Proverbs where God's presence is introduced into the book. It's at the center of the book. It's very profound. It says here, even though as human beings we plan and prepare with expectation for certain outcomes, so this is not negating the importance of planning, Ultimately, what God decides is what happens. You and I cannot control outcomes. How many say that's probably true? We can plan all we want to, but you can't control what's about to happen. You know? And so Proverbs 16:1 says, to humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. Now, this is not just speaking that God you know, helps us say the right things. That's not what's, it's more than that. It extends to the idea that though we plan, God's the one that's going to determine what's about to happen. And I like what Dr. Longman points out. He says, God's will is definitive as to what will actually happen. One can strategize about the future to be sure, but this wise observation would lead one to acknowledge that the future can only be determined by God. And verse uh, chapter 19, verse 21, he says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purposes that prevail. So now knowing that, 
It's so interesting when we're planning because usually when we plan, we can always justify what we're doing. How many know we're great justifiers? How many know that most people probably do what they think is the right thing? Or, what, or the, I'll say it this way, what they really want to do, and then they put a little twist to make sure it's the right thing. They'll, they'll you know, you follow what I'm saying? People have to live with themselves, so they're going to come up with a reason for doing this. And yet, in Proverbs 16, 2, we're reminded, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. You know, Robert Alden, who's an Old Testament scholar, says, even the most violent criminal rationalizes his sin to himself, and somehow we all manage to talk ourselves into doing what we want to do. Isn't that the truth? You know, come on now. Isn't that what people do? Yeah, I'm going to... There's always a reason for doing what we really want to do. We can kind of, you know, build a, a rationale for it. We have to, like I said, we have to live with ourselves. But how many know that if you're going to build something in the construction industry, it's probably good to have a level, you know, at the bubbles, you know, because if you start laying a foundation down and things aren't lining up right, how many know when you're starting to build on top of that, you're going to get everything out of whack? You're going to have all kinds of problems down the road. How many know that's true? That's, you know, we all, you need one of those, right? And so we're going to, if we don't build properly, we're going to build improperly and it's going to create grief for us down the road. What's true in construction is probably even more critical in our lives. We need something to measure our lives on. And how many know God's word is a plumb line? It's like that level that shows us how to build correctly our lives. It evaluates and measures our lives. You know, I love the Bible. You know what it does? It's evaluating me. You know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I think being a daily Bible reader is so critical because now I'm, I'm evaluating my life on a daily basis. You know, it's, I'm making myself accountable to someone greater than myself. I'm making myself accountable to God's ways and purposes in my life. I'm evaluating my life according to his word. I think it's critical to see our lives in light of God's standards and not the ever-changing shift we see in our culture. How many say amen to that? Man, things are moving so fast today. If you're going to evaluate your life based on the culture, you're going to probably feel perfectly fine because it's just moving all the time. You know, it just keeps incorporating more brokenness, more heartache, you know. And I think we think we're very loving as a culture, but I want to just say how unloving we really are because when we're telling broken people it's okay to be broken, all we're telling them is there's no hope for you in that condition. And so the gospel is, you know, why, why we're such an irritant, <laughs> Why the message of the gospel is so irritating is that we're telling people, hey, this is good news. You don't have to be broken. The good news is you can take responsibility and stop just saying I'm a victim and begin to cry out to God and say I need help and I need your work of grace in my life. I need this repair and this restoration. I need this wholeness and this purity. I need this cleansing in my life. But people don't want to hear that. Everybody wants to be told we're okay. That's the message of the culture. Everybody's okay. And yet people are suffering, they're broken, they're in heartache, they're in grief, they're struggling. And so that's a, that's a very challenging thing. You know, I was reminded this morning as I was meditating on Scripture, the powerful words from Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm 19, verses 9 to 14. You know, when we truly have the fear of God and we recognize the power and the purity and the rightness of God's word, which are more precious than earthly wealth. They guide our lives, warn us, and reward us. God's word reminds us that we are unable to discern our hidden faults. How many go, that's true? You know, we're blind to some things. 
And, we can, and the Bible says God can keep us from willful sins ruling over our lives. Only then will we be innocent of great transgression. Only then will the words of our mouth come from a right heart. Don't you love the Bible? Isn't that a beautiful thing? I mean, you can just take this and make it your prayer. Lord, do this work inside of me. Search me, cleanse me, renew me, you know? Powerful. I, I'm a, I was having a good morning in prayer today. You can tell that. You know, most Old Testament scholars see this picture of weighing as taken from the Egyptian hieroglyphics. You know, you've probably seen them on the wall. It's a picture of a human heart being weighed on one scale, balanced against the feather of truth on the other. And what we need to see is that this is not an arbitrary evaluation of how we think we're doing, but it's measured by God's ability to understand and see the true motives of our heart. What we may be justifying may in reality bring a sentence of pain and sorrow not only into our own lives, but also into the lives of others. But when we live a life pleasing to God, listen to the promise, even our enemies will be at peace with us. Look at Proverbs 16, 7. When the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. Now you say, well, how does that happen? You may wonder, how can that even occur? Let me give you a little secret. I was reading an Arabic proverb, and it brings out this idea. Circumstances and perspectives can change loyalties. And how many know that that's true? And I'll give you an example. One of them is found in the book of Genesis. Remember the story of Isaac. Isaac is not a, you know, he's kind of the silent figure of that trilogy, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But remember, in Isaac, God was really blessing his life. And the Philistine, the king, by the name of Ambemelech, uh, grew envious of God's blessing on Isaac's life. Matter of fact, the Philistines kept plugging up his wells. Anybody remember reading that in the book of Genesis? Everywhere he went, he dug a well, they kept plugging it up. They were really, how many know envy is a nasty thing? You know, somebody's doing good, other people are jealous or envious of it, so they kept blocking up his wells. So finally the king was so frustrated with Isaac, he told him, just get out of here. Get out of my territory, I don't want to see your face, you know. And Isaac moves away, and finally God comes to him and says, listen, I'm gonna take care of you, I'll protect you, I'll, I'll make sure I provide for you, Isaac, and he found water at a different location. A little later on in that 26th chapter, we read a change of heart in the heart of Abimelech, the leader. Listen to what it says here in verse 26. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzrath, his personal advisor, and Pichol, the commander of his forces, and Isaac asked him, why have you come to me since you were what? Hostile. Hostile. In other words, you, you're, we were, there was an enmity in this relationship. And you sent me away. You don't want to see me. Why are you coming to me now? They answered, we clearly saw the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you, and let us make a treaty with you. In other words, we're a little concerned. God's hand is on your life, and we don't know what will happen to us. So then... Uh, then that you will do us no harm, just as we did you no harm, but always treated you well. Uh-huh, blocking up all his wells and stuff. But you know, that's the way people see it, you know, and sent you away peacefully. Well, they did send them away peacefully, but they said, get lost, buddy, we don't want you. And now you're blessed by the Lord. And Isaac made a feast for them. Isn't this beautiful? Here's, a, here's an idea of turning the other cheek. Here's a person of forgiveness, beautiful reconciliation. He makes a feast for them, and they eat and they drink. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them away peacefully. Isn't that great? There's an example of exactly what this wisdom literature is teaching us. 
Now, here we see that when we commit our ways to God and endeavor to walk in God's ways, we find God's grace flowing in our lives. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 16.3. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Now, I want to just remind us, this doesn't mean that, you know, I have an idea, I go to God, God bless my idea, and then God's going to make it happen. And I like, Dr. Lahman brings this out as well. He says, all planning thus should be in recognition that God can indeed overturn it. What's he saying? Hold your plans loosely. You, you know, it's not wrong to plan. Listen, I think we seek God, we ask God to show us what to do, then we go out and try to implement the plan. But we've committed it to God. But we have to have our, our plan loosely before us, okay? He says, the thought is not that we simply pray for God to honor our plans and to establish them, Rather, it's the idea that we submit our entire life's action to God so that even if our human plans are subverted, we can recognize an even deeper plan at work in our lives. Isn't that beautiful? What's he really saying? He's saying, look, God, here's what I think you want me to do. Here's what I'm trying to do. I commit this to you. But when when God closes that door, I don't go, oh, no. I put all my eggs in one basket. They're all broken now. I'm the end of my life. I don't know what to do. No, we have to say, oh, God, you're my God. I'm your servant. I've tried to do your will, but obviously this isn't quite it. You know, it's like Paul saying, I want to go into Asia Minor to preach the gospel, and that door closed, and this door closed. And then all of a sudden, one night he had a dream of a man from Macedonia says, come over here and help us. And Paul ascertained with his team that God was calling him to Europe rather than to Asia. He did eventually go to Asia, but he went to Europe. And when he went to Europe, guess what? God opened up the doors and churches got established. So we need to understand that sometimes God closes the door. How many have ever had God close a door in your face? I got my hand up, of course. But you know what the good news is? God can open a new door. You know what we should do? Instead of trying to bang on the door and get all upset with God, why didn't you open this door? Why don't we just say, God, thank you. I didn't want to go through that door anyways. It's probably not the best door for me. Oh, there's a door over here. Thank you, Lord. Look at this, the blessings that are flowing from this. That's what we're talking about here. I love this, what Bruce Walkie says about this text. He says, secular man who feels so self-confident, self-confident paradoxically is plagued with fear. Isn't that an amazing statement? Now we're in COVID-19. This is really applicable, folks. We're all so self-confident. We can handle all of this. Oh, we're going to do this together. Man, everyone's shaking in fear. But listen to what it says. Pious people know God's sovereignty and their limitations. They live in prayer and peace. Isn't that beautiful? How many would like to live in in a state of peace? To just live in that state where I'm committing everything. I'm in communion with God. You know, whatever comes my way, I'm just going, okay, God. Is this what we're doing now? Fine with me. You want to, do, want to roll this way? I'm rolling with you. You know, some people get so upset when things don't work out, they're like a little three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. Come on now. You know, some of you are upset all the time. Well, oh, I'm trying this, it's not working. I'm so frustrated with life. I'm so frustrated with God. Why don't we just relax, cool our jets, just say, hey, God, I'm on your team. Where are we going, Lord? Where are we going this morning? Who are we meeting? Who are we talking to? Oh, we're going to do this today. Didn't have it on my calendar, but that's fine with me. It was on your calendar. It's a whole different way of looking at life, and it's far more relaxing and far more exciting. What these scholars are reminding us of, that when we act, the outcomes are beyond our control. God is ultimately in control So when things don't work out the way we think, we need to trust that God ultimately knows what's best. 
You know, there used to be an old show years ago, Father Knows Best. Well, our Heavenly Father knows best. Just point that out to us. You know, we need to understand in relationship to justice that God will ultimately deal with all injustice. Proverbs 6, 4, 16, 4 says, The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. So what these verses teach us that God overrides what those who commit evil intend. And God uses their actions ultimately to a greater purpose. Now, how many say only God can pull this stuff off? I mean, God can take what people use that's a mess and use it for good. That's a God thing. That's when I know God's at work in things. Well, let me give you a couple of examples of this, and I think it's beautiful. How many remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? You know, he was this crazy 17-year-old kid, had dreams, he had older brothers, they were all jealous of Joseph. He was just telling them, one day you can all bow down to me. How many know that really irked them? And it really ticked them off because, you know, the dad showed favoritism toward him. And Joseph was kind of a, you know, he, he didn't know how to handle what was going on in his life. And so he was kind of rubbing it in their faces a little bit. That really grind on these guys. And finally, they had the opportunity one day to kill him. They got so angry, they wanted to kill him. But one of the brothers said, hey, look, some slave traders are coming by. Why don't we just sell them off to those guys? Let's see what happens to his dreams then, Right? How many know that they intended to hurt Joseph at that moment? That, that wasn't, oh, Joseph, I'm here to bless you. I'm going to sell you into slavery. How many go, that's not what I call a blessing? You know, right? And Joseph probably will scream and, hey, don't do this to me. What are you guys doing? You know, they pull him away and finally they sell him into slavery. But how many know that was part of God's plan? You see, he goes down to slavery, and we all know what happens. He ends up, you know, in Potiphar's household, falsely accused, ends up in prison, you know. And then two uh, pharaohs, the king's uh, personal attendants, a baker and a, a butler, are thrown into jail. One's doing bad, one's doing okay. And uh, Joseph interprets their dreams, and exactly as he interprets it correctly, boom, that's exactly what happens. And then Joseph says, hey, listen, I was falsely treated. I was you know, thrown into slavery by my brothers. I was falsely accused and put into prison. Now, can you please get me out of jail? And the butler, who had every opportunity to bring up his name to Pharaoh, what does he do? The Bible says, and he forgot Joseph. How many go, that's a bad deal? Poor Joseph. That just tells you how self-centered we are as human beings. I'm out of my trouble, forget the guy still in trouble, right? But the Bible says Pharaoh had a nightmare. And in his nightmare, he's starting to tell all his wise people. He says, hey, what's going to happen now? Nobody could interpret the dream. And then the butler remembered. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, there was this crazy guy in jail. You know, he interpreted the dreams perfectly for me. You know, and he reiterated the story, and Pharaoh remembered, and so they drugged Joseph out of prison. Joseph comes up, tells the Pharaoh his dreams, tells him what he ought to do, and Pharaoh goes, you're the man to run the whole operation, and he makes him second in command of all the land. How many go? You know, that started out pretty bad for Joseph. He gets sold into slavery, but ends up the prime minister of the most powerful country in the nation. How in the world does that happen? Because God's in charge of the situation. And I love it at the end when his brothers come to him, after their father's death, and they're still grieving over 30 years. They're dealing with the, the shame, and they're reproaching themselves for the evil they'd done to their brother. And listen to what Joseph's response is in Genesis 50, verse 20. He said, you intended to harm me, but God indeed it, intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. How many know only God can pull that stuff off? But if you think that's a great story, I want to give you the ultimate story. Here's the ultimate story, that God could use the 
the insecurities of King Herod. God could use, you know, the, the problems in, Fer- uh, in Pilate's life and the jealousy of the religious leaders of his time, and they took Jesus, and they had him tried, falsely accused, and they crucified him. And listen to what Peter's sermon is on the day of Pentecost, and it says, uh, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Here is the good news. God used ungodly leaders to accomplish his will and plan. And the greatest evil that humanity could come up with, which is the false accusation and the crucifixion of God is a human being turns out to be the salvation of all of humanity. How many go, this is amazing. How many say that's amazing? It is amazing. No wonder Paul says in Romans chapter eight and verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good to those who love him. You say, yeah, but I can't see how this is happening in my life right now. It's working for good, Pastor. Yeah, but you're not God. You can't see what God's doing. And I just say to you this morning that you and I need to learn to trust in the sovereignty of Almighty God and not be so worried and so panicky and so frustrated and so upset and so beyond yourself with what is going on at this time in our life, in human history, in your personal life, because God, I'm declaring to you this morning that God is gonna use it for good. And we need to hear that today. Let me move on to the other side of leadership. That's understanding human governance, which is an instrumentality of God. What am I telling you? God chooses to use human leaders. And I want to say they're all imperfect. Whoa, I have to say that because everybody points it out. (laughs) Why don't we just say it in front of, there's not one person that you can bring as a human leader that you're going to like, and I'm going to shock you right now, because when the perfect human leader showed up on the scene, his name was Jesus, people had a hard time with him. Come on now. There was a lot of criticism of Jesus, the perfect human leader. Getting real quiet in here. Uh, Just teasing you guys. It's okay. So what happens when these people are acting as God's agents overseeing his affairs in the lives of people? Well, let's take a look at Proverbs 16.10. The lips of a king speak as an oracle and his mouth does not betray justice. The king detests wrongdoing for a throne is established through righteousness. Paul Kopic says, the king is identified with Yahweh as an authority, one who holds life and death in hand. He must ensure that justice is done on the earth. So really, the the role of a human leader is to do the right thing. Everyone says, "Amen." amen. That's their job. Do the right thing. Do what's right. Do what's righteous. Do what's just. Do they all do that? Unfortunately, no. Look at verse 13. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value the one who speaks what's right. That's true if they're a righteous king. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, but the wise will appease it. How many know when you have a a king that's a monarch and he's the ultimate authority, you don't want to tick that guy off because he has the authority to put you to death. How many know that when, you know, some of these uh, Babylonian kings, they were like despots, like Nebuchadnezzar. He'd, He'd go into a fit of fury. 
And that's not a good thing, ticking them off, you know. So if you're a wise person, you know how to speak to them to calm them down. You know, remember Daniel, they were going to kill all the wise men. Daniel came to the king and said, hey, listen, we'll figure this out. Just give me the night, you know. What did, Nebuch- what did Nebuchadnezzar want? He wanted these guys to interpret his dream. They said, well, tell us the dream. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't trust you guys. You tell me what I dream, then I'll know your interpretation is true. They said, no one's ever done that before. You're expecting something that's impossible. But Daniel didn't come to him and say that. He said, listen, just give me the night. I'll talk to my God, and God's going to give you give us what you need to hear. And God revealed to Daniel what his dream was as well as the interpretation. I'm going to think, that's amazing. Isn't that incredible? Okay. When a king's face brightens, it means life. His favor is like the rain cloud in spring. In verse 13, we see that this king who values honesty and what is right shares divine values. In other words, they're on God's page. Paul Kopic says, Yahweh's purposes are carried out whenever human authorities decide to value what God values. I love that. But Yahweh will still see that justice is done, but his first choice is kings and subjects who share God's desire for goodness. But how many know through human history we haven't all had good leaders? Does anybody know that's true? Unfortunately, it is true. Study history. I love studying it, and I see what's the problem. It's all over the place. Uh, what he's saying that uh, it's good to have godly leaders rule over us. It's a lot better than having ungodly leaders, but God's still going to fulfill what he wants to do. Look at Proverbs 21.1. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. So what is God saying? He's saying, listen, you don't know this, but I can even move the heart of a king to do what I want. That's what he's saying. And a lot of times these kings don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. Believe me, they don't. Now let's take an example. Let's, let's pick on one guy, Nebuchadnezzar, because you know he's a despot. He's a tyrant. He's a world leader, and there's nobody that's opposing to him. So here's the story in chapter 4. I love this. This is to show you how powerful God is. And even the greatest, strongest leaders are under God's control. Listen to what it says in Daniel 4. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I built as a royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Oh, my, my, my. You know, what can I say? It's all about Nebuchadnezzar. Can I just tell us all that your ability to think comes from God, your breath comes from God, your opportunities come from God, your resources come from God, it's all God-given? Okay, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Okay, who gave him his royal authority? Thank you, God did. God used him as a servant. What was God doing? He was chastening his people Israel because of their sin, or Judah because of their sin. He was an instrument in the hands of God to discipline his people. That's what he was. You will be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. 
Wow. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. What happened to him? He lost his mind. He flipped his lid. He went right off, right off the deep end. He didn't even know he was a human being until he could acknowledge who God was. And the moment he said, I lifted my eyes to heaven and I acknowledged who God was, my sanity was restored. How many think that's powerful? You know, then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever and God restored his kingdom back to him. How many say, what an amazing story. Why is that story there? To show you and I that the most, the most powerful individual on the planet at that time was nothing in sight of Almighty God. God is the one who establishes and brings down. God's the one who's going to accomplish his purposes. In Proverbs 16, 11, it says, Honest scales and balances belong to the Lord. All the weights in the bag are in his making. Richard Clifford explains that weights here are seen as instruments of justice. In the ancient Near East, the belief was widespread that the gods created the universe and determined all of its ways. Laws, weights, and measures were part of that determination. The king, as a region of the gods, was responsible for ensuring that the divinely implanted justice was observed in the conduct of business. Weights and measures were instruments in the administration of divine justice. So, what's he saying? That these leaders' responsibility are to implement what's right and just in the eyes of God. So every leader one day is going to stand before God. Every single leader. And God's going to say, okay, I instituted you. I gave you this opportunity. How did you lead the people I put over you? And if they didn't serve them the way God decided, they're going to come up in trouble. Isn't that true? Absolutely. So, you know, being a leader is a, great, is, is, is a privilege, but it's a great responsibility, and we better be serving God. So what were the wisdom writers teaching us regarding divine and human authority? I'm going to close with this. That God's instruments were the kings in the land. To disobey those in authority would be at one's own expense. I think we need to write that down in our minds, etch it in your heart. If I disobey the kings of the land, if I disobey God's instituted authority and they're not asking me to do something illegal or immoral or against God's purposes, then I'm actually rebelling against God. That's really what we need to understand. Even those kings that were considered evil, God still worked out his purposes. Sometimes we kind of go, ah, this person's in charge, right? We're biting our nails and going, where are they going to take us? I say, stop biting your nails. Get on your knees and say, Lord, I thank you that you're in control. And so we need to understand that God raises up leaders for different purposes. Sometimes God raises up a leader so that the people are corrected. Do you ever think that sometimes our culture needs correction? Does anybody think that our culture might need a little correction? Anybody here might say that they might need a little correction? How many think that the kind of affluence we lived under has helped our culture forget who God is and we've become self-sufficient and independent from God. How many say that's probably true? Okay, how many can understand if God decides to remove some of the affluence and causes us to actually get on our knees and start looking to him for sustenance and supply that we might in the long run be a healthier, happier people than we currently are? See, we just think in a certain way. We just assume that, you know, the way it's been, it should always be. Do you think God's interested in bigger boats, in bigger houses? 
Or do you think God's more concerned about you and I relating to each other correctly, justly, caring for the poor, and having healthy relationships with one another? What do you think God's really concerned about? Do you think God's just concerned about this moment in your life, or is he concerned about all eternity? I'm just pointing these things out. So we need to have a broader perspective and a bigger vision of what God's trying to do. Sometimes the kings were, you know, like the Assyrian and Babylonian kings that God used to discipline his people. But then there were other times when God used kings like Cyrus, who was a Persian. You know, he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't, you know, but God says, he's going to be my servant. He's going to be my instrument. What did Cyrus do? The Persian king, he repatriated the people. In other words, he allowed the people to go back to the land to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the house of worship, and allowed them to worship the true and the living God. And he said, hey, pray for me. You know, he still taxed them. I mean, he was still in it for himself, but he did it in a totally different way, and God used him as an instrument. So you say, how does that apply to us? I think we need to learn to be in subjection to those governing authorities who God instituted over us. You say, are there any exceptions? Well, I think there are moments, like when the Sanhedrin says to Peter and to John, he said, don't preach the gospel. And Peter says to them, no, we have to obey God rather than man. See, they were forbidding them to do what God had mandated. That's one thing. That's an exception. But let's remember what Paul's instructions are to us from the book of Romans. It says here, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God instituted, and those who do so will bring what? Judgment Judgment on themselves. Let's stand. All right, that was a lot of information, and I did it in just the right amount of time, so I know. It's that, you know what I'm, I'm hoping will happen? You'll actually listen to this again. You'll go back and say, what was all said there, and how does that apply to me? Because I said a lot today. Anybody get that? I was rolling, but I'm trying to give you guys an understanding. I'm trying to help us understand how we need to respond to the leaders that God places over us even when we don't agree with their viewpoint. Does that make sense to us? Can you see what God's saying? And what am I saying to you? God's still in control. Don't worry about them. They can tell you all kinds of stuff, but ultimately God's accomplishment will will be accomplished. So let's pray. Lord, I just pray today that you will help us. I know some of us in this room, we probably struggle at times with people that are saying and doing things, Lord, or maybe even leaders are saying and doing things, or maybe we don't agree with what's going on, but Lord, I pray that we will start beginning to say, what do you think about things, Father? What's your attitude towards this? And how can I comply to your purposes and will? And help me to have a deeper confidence that even in a difficult time, good is going to come And I just need to look to you that outcomes are going to be maybe different than what I want, but ultimately your outcomes for our lives are for good. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning. I'm going to just remind you, please pick up your kids as soon as you can. We got to do the cleaning thing. That's great. Ushers, that's great. 